You're listening to an episode of Law Review Squared, the Law Review Review. It is 8 p.m. on Thursday, February 25th, 2021. I'm joined today by our panel, Shenley Kent, Seth Trott, Joanne Fernando, who I'll ask to answer the question, what's your favorite flower or plant? Let's start with Joanne. A weeping willow tree. Decent choice. Uh, Shenley? I have an aloe plant that's going pretty strong that I'm proud of right now. Nice choice. Seth? I have a little lemon tree upstairs that is not going very strong. I'm Tony Fernando, and I choose the Venus flytrap, but mine died um, this past semester. While supplies last, you can still get a free Law Review Squared sticker by sending your mailing address to lexclava at gmail.com. That's L-E-X-C-L-A-V-A at gmail.com. We'll ship anywhere, even if you're overseas. Reminder that opinions here are those of the panelists and do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, the panelists' present, former, or future employers, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. And now I'm going to turn the episode over to Joanne. The article we will be discussing today is by Katie Basala, titled Shortening the Leash, Emotional Support Animals Under the Fair Housing Act. Just as the title suggests, the article covers the protections and laws of emotional support animals under the FHA. The FHA is in place to protect those who may be discriminated against when it comes to housing and comfortable living. The article discusses how this applies to those in need of an emotional of an emotional support animal. With emotional support animals, sometimes it is difficult to tell whether or not someone's documentation request for their emotional support animal is authentic. Should homeowners or landlords take documentation at face value, or is it morally right for them to dig into their tenant's medical history? I'll ask this to Shinley. Thank you, Joanne. Um, I do, um, hmm. I don't know if moral, I would go as far to say morally right. I mean, I do understand how landlords have to do their due diligence to uh, kind of substantiate the documentation that the tenants are submitting. Um, And I think that there has to be a balancing act between um, respecting the tenants' um, personal uh, medical information and then also kind of making sure that the information is correct. Um, so I do think that in the article, you know, they said that they, they gave a couple talking points that I did, you know, kind of think that uh, they were reasonable. Um, I think that, um, you know, if someone does submit documentation from a doctor, um, that should be taken um, more legitimately as opposed to someone who just went online and printed something from, you know, any website out there. Uh, Tony? Yeah, I pretty much agree with Shanley on this. The um, There is a need to protect the tenant's privacy. There is a need to um, protect people with disabilities. There's no real reason why a landlord needs to know if somebody is disabled, other than to the extent that they're allowing something that's separate from the lease, uh, nor do I think that they should have um, some type of right to uh, detailed information on on that disability and i do think that it makes sense to uh take a authenticated note from a doctor um at face value the problem does come from things like websites where uh people can basically fill out a form and then now they have certification that they're disabled it's um and unfortunately that's just the the world that we live in that people who um just want to be able to have their pet free will 
attempt to take advantage of a system that's designed to help people that that do need assistance from an emotional support animal. Seth? Yeah, I agree with both of um, Shenley and Tony's points. Um, and, and going off what Tony was saying, I mean, we talked about on the show before about how every system is going to kind of come with those people who try to abuse it or skirt around the rules. And so you kind of have to factor that into uh, into your, your consideration when you're thinking about a policy or a program or whatever you're doing. And so the justification for not taking something at face value, it, you know, I understand it. But um, in this case, you know, I think it's reasonable to to allow landlords to at least question some uh, some iffy documentation. All right. Uh, should there be a standard for all states to enact the FHA for support animals that says that those who need a support animal must have severe mental health issues? Or is a case of light anxiety or depression enough to warrant a support animal? Tony? Uh, I think that it, I want I would be very cautious about letting the legislature or an administrative agency decide what constitutes sufficient anxiety to warrant a support animal. I think that the people who are best positioned to make that determination are probably going to be healthcare providers. So, so long as the documentation and prescription for the emotional support animal is coming from a legitimate licensed healthcare provider, um, I would not be too inclined to second guess that determination. Shinley? Um, I, I, I think that if there's a standard, um, it kind of helps everyone to get on the same page. So um, I, I think that if the states were to follow a standard that was set by the feds, that, that might help um, kind of, again, put everybody on the same page and there wouldn't be any types of ambiguity or, I mean, there's, I, th I feel like there's might always be some gray areas, but, um, you know, in the article, they talked about um, the different forces between the state and the feds and how some landlords are, you know, they think they're following state law, but they might uh, be hit with um, a sanction because they're not following the federal mandate. So I think that um, just to avoid kind of confusion, it might be helpful if everyone followed the Fed standard and then just kind of get everybody on the same page that way. All right, Seth, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with Jen Lee on that one about following the federal standard. I think at some point you have to just establish some sort of universal principle and follow it. All right, going off of that, if someone raises a claim of discrimination for refusal to accommodate and ESA under the FHA as an argument court, but turns out to be in the wrong. Should that person face punishment, including being separated from their animal? Or is it necessary to evict the owner of the animal due to their inability to follow the landlord's guidelines? Should there be a punishment for someone who attempts to use the FHA to get accommodations for an ESA under fraudulent motives? Uh, Seth? I mean, I don't know about separating someone from their animal. I think that's kind of draconian, but um, I could see there being some sort of punishment for someone who's, you know, has proven to have fraudulent motives. But uh, again, and I think it kind of goes back to the core argument that Basal is making here and that we wouldn't really have to be discussing this issue so much if uh, the FHA included some sort of a provision that defined what was legally sufficient to establish a need for uh, an emotional support animal. And, you know, that could be as easy as 
just a HUD form or um, some sort of direction about it being an explicitly um, a, a note from a licensed doctor or mental health practitioner. And then, you know, then, then the risk, quote unquote, of the landlord having to accommodate someone with an emotional support animal just becomes uh, an inherent risk, I guess, if you want to call it that, of being a landlord. And uh, it's kind of the, the issue's over with. All right. Tony? Yeah, I I think that you can go to court and lose without malice or without necessarily ill intent. You can go to court and legitimately believe that you have a case that you need an ESA. The court find that you didn't, and it shouldn't follow that you have draconian uh, consequences from that. I mean, I would think that in many cases, the first thing that should happen, our first attempt of something that should happen would be that the landlord offers to allow you to pay pet rent for your animal. And in many cases, that would be sufficient. And then everybody can move on happily. That said, there have been some cases where people have attempted to use uh, the ESA claim not under FHA, but under the American Disabilities Act to bring some very odd animals onto airplanes in order to avoid um, increased fees for transporting animals. And I think that in those cases where there's a clear pecuniary motive, so a financial motive for, for that claim rather than a a good faith belief that it is an emotional support animal, that it, it, it could be reasonable to have consequences. Sounds good. Shinley? Um, just before I start my point, Tony, I have a story. Uh, on an airplane once, I sat next to a person with an emotional support animal, and it was a ferret. And um, I have really bad allergies, and they didn't have the ferret caged or anything like that. And the flight crew, pretty it was a full flight. They told me I was pretty much out of luck. I had to deal with it. I'm sneezing the whole time and miserable, and no one absolutely wanted to trade seats with me because, you know, who wants to sit next to a ferret? I'm not trying to be disrespectful to people who love ferrets. They're absolutely adorable. But, again, like, I'm not sure how you know, like a, a ferret as an emotional support animal. Like I'm not here to say whether it was legitimate or anything, but I felt like my rights were infringed on. Like as a paying customer, like don't I have a right to be free of not uh, sitting next to an animal that makes me sneeze on a four hour plane ride? But anyway, to your point, Joanne, um, I don't agree with uh, people uh, necessarily getting in trouble, like even if this person went on some like fraudulent website to register their ferret as an emotional support animal and didn't have legitimate paperwork, um, I, I think I, I, I want people to be able to access services. And a lot of times people don't have access to it. You know, like it, it can be super expensive to go to the doctor, go to a psychiatrist and get the proper diagnosis to have an animal like this. Um, so I can see why someone would just say, okay, well, let me pay $30 to get this. Um, and they think that they are, um, you know, getting a bargain and also, you know, having legitimate paperwork. So I, I think that, you know, probably more education needs to be out there. And it, I feel like these websites that do offer these services for such a cheap amount, those are the ones who probably, I think, should be sanctioned because I feel like they're preying on um, unsuspecting consumers and offering them a service that they know is probably not acceptable, but they can try to get around the system in a certain type of way. 
I definitely agree with everything you just said. Um, I feel like if someone does something fraudulent and they don't mean to, uh, having to be told you have to pay the pet fee is reasonable. But I feel like it may be going a little far to like separate them from their animal. I mean, unless it's an illegal animal. And with that in mind, I'll ask a question. With service animals, the animals are limited to certain species and require in-depth training. Should emotional support animals also be limited to certain species and have to undergo special training? Or should people be able to declare any animal as an emotional support animal? Uh, Seth? I don't really have a strong argument either way on this one. Um, I guess it seems to me that an emotional support animal is what it is because it's not a service animal. Service animals are expected to take on greater responsibilities for the disabled person, uh, like a seeing eye dog or something, whereas emotional support animals are meant to just kind of make you feel good with their presence. And so going off that, it, it makes sense to me that service animals are better defined, uh, whereas an emotional support animal is more subjective. It's sort of in the eye of the beholder, so to speak. Um, but that being said, it might make sense to have some maybe minimal requirement for training for the animal, like just making sure it has a good temperament or something. And, and I don't know that a lot of folks um, that have emotional support animals opt to have, or, or rather I do know that um, a lot of people with emotional support animals tend to have them trained in some way. I know um, last semester we did a project on this and I was looking into one case and I, I kind of started reading a little more uh, than I probably should about it. And I, I was digging into some articles and, and there was this case out of Ohio where uh, these two students were limited, uh, living in the same house and um, they were college students at Ohio State. And then the, the one girl had a, uh, like an emotional support chihuahua or something. And the other girl was allergic to dogs. And then, so the case came down to, you know, whose rights are um, being violated and who, who wins that case. And I, I guess it ultimately came down to the fact that the girl that was allergic to dogs couldn't prove that the other girl's dog was causing her allergic reactions and that she and that she also had like dogs at her house or something like that or at her parents' house or something. So uh, the court ultimately ruled in favor of the girl with the animal. But the point of that that I missed was that um, the girl with the dog had trained the dog to sit on her chest when she was having anxiety issues. Nice story there. Um... Shinley, what are your thoughts? I do think that there should be some type of training um, because, and just maybe just like simple commands on, you know, how to sit, how to behave, how to do things like that. Because uh, again, going back to this ferret, like this thing was all over the place and there it had like no training. We're on a small airplane. It just was a very miserable situation for me. And I think it probably just would have been better had the training had, the, the fair has some type of training. So I do think that if you are um, depending on a, an animal to provide you comfort and that animal um, in large part is dealing with the public, then there, there should be some type of training that um, has to happen. All right, Tony. So I'm of two minds on this. Um, I can see the point that both Shenway and and Seth made that and that an animal that's interacting with public probably should have training if 
the animal is the type of animal that can be trained. Um, there was a memoir written by a lady who had, who was recovering from a terrible disease. Um, I read it maybe a decade ago. It's the sound of a wild snail eating by Elizabeth Tova Bailey. And that snail that was the focus of that memoir was an emotional support animal. It was not called that anywhere in the book, but, um, you know, that's how that animal functioned for her. And it functioned for her in that way, just by climbing around on a potted plant and doing its thing while she was bedridden. And that was like the only thing that she was able to watch. And that was her connection to the, to the wider world. Um, that said, I don't think that anybody in almost anybody is going to have a problem with a snail being used as a muscle support animal. That's not the type of thing that's going to damage an apartment. It's not the type of thing that's going to climb over an airline seat, <laughs> you know? Um, so th there is a reasonableness standard, um, you know, that I, I think does need to be applied, uh, that hypothetical reasonable person that shows up in torts and contracts and doesn't seem to actually exist. Um, but I, I think that type of judgment does need to be applied to these, this type of question. I think I can generally agree. I think that there should be some sort of standard on uh, what animals can be an emotional support animal because I feel like what if someone has like a, a coyote or something? That's that's just wild or, or a, I don't know, a parrot or something that's flying around. If they're taking it in public or whatever, I feel like there should be some sort of you know, limit on, you know, what kind of animals they can take in the public. With that last question of mine, should certain animals be allowed to be declined by a landlord with reasonable objection, or should all animals be protected under the FHA? Uh, Seth? I mean, I think it, with a reasonable objection is valid, um, but the key word is reasonable. I mean, should I be able to have a an emotional support, um, a herd of cockroaches or, or a poisonous snake. I mean, you know, but, but objecting to like a German shepherd as opposed to a golden retriever or something would probably be unreasonable in my book without some sort of good cause. But again, you know, objecting to a porcupine over a tabby cat or something is probably reasonable objection. I can see that. And it's somebody having uh, roaches as their emotional support animal i if i was a landlord personally i would say no thank you tony what are your thoughts i don't know i i mean i think that it's, it's complex um i think that the landlord has an interest in maintaining the integrity of the property and making sure that there's not damage yes a security deposit is supposed to cover that but realistically you know one month security deposit or two month security deposit um and more than that's generally not even permitted in a lot of places is not necessarily going to cover the damage caused by say you know if my emotional support animal is a colony of termites you know um just to go off of what uh seth's example was so um that said i don't necessarily have a lot of trust that especially um small landlords will act reasonably i think that there are many 
people in certain states who would happily use the presence of something that probably is reasonable, like a you know, miniature pig, as pretextual grounds to deny a lease to somebody who is of a race that they don't like or a religion that they don't like. Um, and that potential harm and an inability to obtain housing for people, I think, is a bigger harm to society than the potential damage to the structure owned by the landlord. Definitely. Shenley? I feel like both of them made the points that I was going to say. I was going to say, like, you know, I don't know whether or not you landlords should be able to discriminate against certain animals. But then again, like I wouldn't want someone moving into my property with like 10 rats or, you know, something like that. And then again, I think that that could be a precursor to kind of uh, discriminate against you know, other things that people, you know, other quality that people don't want in their housing. Like, again, like if you don't want a certain race or religion or something like that. So I do think that is this, uh, it could be a slippery slope. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. That's, that's my answer. Sorry. That's okay. Um, so that's all our questions, but I do have an on the fly question. What are y'all's thoughts on emotional support animals? in public places because i know we talked about like how animals should act in public places and shinley with your ferret on the plane kind of uncomfortable what are y'all's thoughts on uh, emotional support animals going into public places versus like service animals who do have that training i i guess um i have never had a problem or felt threatened or otherwise uncomfortable because of a service animal, meaning a trained animal. Um, they would occasionally come through when we lived in St. Paul in our apartment building, there would occasionally be people who had those types of animals, um, you know, the dogs on a harness and because they were blind, right? And they were trying to get into the skyway. But the ferret on the airplane does bring me back to when we moved from Saskatchewan back to North Carolina and we flew um, to uh, my parents' house in Cleveland from Saskatchewan, you know, we had two cats and we paid the pet fee. I mean, we we went through all the paperwork to, to transport our cats home from Canada to the United States. We didn't try and claim they were emotional support animals, um, but we had cats with us and they were in carriers and they were under the seat. And, you know, I don't know that um, anybody was affected by that, but if somebody was affected, was allergic to cats, uh, you do have a problem there. And animals that are not trained service animals, you know, they can cause reactions in people. On the other hand, we allow people to have their pets in many circumstances. So I, I, I think it becomes one of those, you know, six of one and half a dozen of the other and, and things need to be handled in a case-by-case basis what would you think joanne if somebody brought their emotional support not a trained service animal but their emotional support dog to your high school and then same question but what if it's an emotional support you know uh cat it, you know how much of a distru- disruption do you think that would be um, honestly so i will say that i've had this experience before um i generally don't i definitely don't have a problem service animals because they are trained but say someone has an emotional support dog dogs generally are much more rowdy and 
loud compared to cats. So there would be more disruption if that dog was not trained compared to that cat who may meow a couple times, but cats don't meow unless they're trying to get the attention of a human. And even then, it's not as distracting as, say, a dog barking at a squirrel that they saw out the window. Um, so I feel like there is a difference in disruption if the animals are not trained. But, I mean, I don't have too much of a problem with it. I know I've seen, like, um, I've seen uh, service animals. And I've also... Um, when I was in the hospital, they had a emotional support dog, but she was trained. She was very well put together. She sat there and let us kids pet her. I feel like that's different than having an untrained dog that's an emotional support animal out and about. Anyone else? I have a dog and she has very bad anxiety. So I refer to myself and my husband as her emotional support humans. And I wish we could get designations to kind of take her places with us because she has like such bad separation anxiety when we have to leave her at home. And it's always just a, a real mess when we come home. Uh, so, you know, I don't, I don't want to circumvent the system and just kind of get like a, go to www you know, register your dog as a service animal.com. But I, I feel like for people that do do that, because I thought about it a couple of times, I'm like, it would be so nice if I could just take her with me and make my life a lot simpler. But, you know, I, I don't think that that's appropriate because again, I'm her emotional support human and not the other way around. So I don't want to, you know, mess up the system in that way. And going off that, I guess, I don't really know where I fall on it, but it in our homes, we, we tend to have a right to privacy. You know, you need a warrant for the police to come into the into your house or something. And then when you go out in public, the stakes get higher. You're expected to um, act in a way that's going to, in general, you know, protect society or at least not disturb it. And and so maybe in terms of an emotional support animal out in public places that animals typically wouldn't be, um, I could see there being... Uh, increased regulations around that or rules at least but either way you know i don't have a strong opinion and so now with the uh, promulgation of the law review squared emotional support animals in public test being that the uh, emotional support animal may be regulated in public places but not private places we are about out of time Thanks again to our panel, Seth, Shenley, and Joanne. A reminder, you can find a link to the article discussed by going to lawreviewsquared.com and looking at the episode notes. Let us know what topics you'd like us to consider by twittering suggestions to at Squared Law. Please like, follow, subscribe, or give us a rating wherever you found this podcast. If you're a law student at any school and would like to be on a panel, feel free to get in touch using any method. Audio post-processing by Mohamed Salim. Podcast adjourned.